Let's again join our hearts in prayer as we prepare to read God's holy word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us now as we read your word to know your ways teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all the day long. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from the letter of James, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Dearly beloved, hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of his truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Every trial we face is an opportunity to be refined. Scripture makes that very clear. For those of you who are studying through the letter of James, you have found this truth in only the second verse of this letter. James instructs us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And we said last week that we are to be joyful in affliction. Why? Because as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in our suffering knowing that our suffering produces endurance. So we said last week that God in his providence does not waste our suffering, our being tried. There is a point to it. But endurance or steadfastness, as James calls it, is not the ultimate goal. God does not simply want us to build our endurance. The word that James uses here for steadfastness means to remain under. It is to remain under a heavy load. So perhaps we get the image of someone who is using weights, heavy weights to build endurance. And people who do endurance training usually are not doing it for the endurance itself. Endurance is typically desired for the purpose of allowing the individual to accomplish a goal, like perhaps completing some sort of race, like a marathon or a triathlon, or perhaps being fit for a specific function if their job requires physical labor, or perhaps simply just living with energy. 
James continues then, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is the aim of being tested through trials? A more mature faith, a faith that is healthy and holy. And as we face trials and are refined by them, the ultimate goal is that we would then grow in holiness. Just as gold is purified by fire, its impurities burned away, so too do trials have a way of burning away our spiritual imperfections. And as we grow in holiness through our trials, we are brought ever nearer to God. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says this very same thing that James is getting at in the first few verses of his letter. Paul says, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Trials, therefore, have a way of growing our hope in God, of drawing us nearer to Jesus Christ, who we remember suffered for us. And since Christ is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, we are able through times of hardship to identify more closely with Jesus Christ to have a deeper appreciation for his salvific work for us on the cross, and therefore to adore him and to worship him more deeply, to commit ourselves to follow him more faithfully. So James tells us that we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. But not only because through trials do we build endurance, which leads to holiness. He also adds in verse 12, the first verse of our passage, that those who endure trials will be blessed. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Athletes endure the pain of physical training, disciplining their bodies to compete at a high level in order to taste the glory of victory. They work tirelessly to receive the award that is given to those who win the competition. To the athlete being victorious, winning the award is well worth the pain of training. And in James's day, that award would have been a laurel reef crown. For the believer who endures trials, the reward is much greater. It is not a crown or any worldly prize that is subject to rot or decay. Rather, it is the crown of life. The Apostle Peter tells us that this reward is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Dearly beloved, there is no earthly prize worth comparing with life eternal in the presence of God, where there is perfect joy, peace, and righteousness, where evil has been eternally banished, where there is no more sin or sadness, where there is no more death or decay. 
This is the hope of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And scripture is not ashamed of encouraging us with the promise of this reward. And we should not be ashamed to long for it, to strive for it, to hope for it. But dearly beloved, there is another side of trials. For every opportunity to be refined and grow in holiness, there is also an equal an opposite opportunity to fail. Every opportunity to choose to live in the light, there is an opportunity to fall into the darkness. In fact, it is the path of least resistance because it is the path where we do not have to bear up the weight of the trial. When we are faced with difficulties, we are almost always given the opportunity to go the other way, to give up, to seek to minimize our pain, to be crushed under the weight of our hardship, to deny our faith. This is why trials are said to be tests. It is why the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are not simply opportunities to demonstrate the authenticity of our faith and to grow in holiness. They also have a way of testing us for weaknesses. Elizabeth and I have been uh, doing some workout videos by Les Mills during this stay-at-home order since we can't go to the gym. And I have discovered that there are muscles that I did not even know that I had, that have revealed their weakness because apparently they never get tried and tested in my typical workouts. Five or six minutes seems like a short amount of time, unless that time is filled with squats and lunges. And then it is a pain fest for my legs. Suddenly, it turns into what feels like an eternity. And I confess that it is one that often breaks me. Aspects of our faith that are never tried or tested on a normal basis might prove to be weak when met with resistance during times of difficulty. And at that point of weakness comes temptation. When we are put in a situation that tests our patience, for instance, we are tempted to become frustrated or angry. Or when we're put in the situation that tests our contentment, we are tempted to become jealous or covetous. When we're put in a situation of great sadness or grief, we're tempted to despair and hopelessness. James does not want us to be uninformed, though, which is why he quickly moves from trials to temptations. And this is what James wants us to understand. While God allows us to face trials, he does not, he does not bring about the temptations that come with them. 
These arise from our own sinful desires. So the Bible, as Al Mohler pointed out last week's Sunday school lesson, is careful to distinguish between trials and temptations. The two often go together, but they are not synonymous. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. God is not our tempter, but a sincere and benevolent giver, as James will go on to say. It is Satan who is the tempter. In every moment of pain and difficulty, he wants us to deny our faith, to take the easy way out by choosing what seems like the pleasurable thing in the moment. So he dangles the bait with all of its artificial attractiveness, sort of like the fishing lure with all of its bright and shiny colors and its seductive movements. And we're given a choice. Do we resist? Stand firm and endure? Or do we allow ourselves to be allured by the temptation's charm? Begin to desire the promised pleasures and decide to take the bait. And what James says is that once desire has taken root in it, it it conceives and gives birth to sin. And once we bite, we find ourselves hooked on the end of a line being dragged to our death. Right now, brothers and sisters, we are all in the midst of a time of difficulty. A time in which the world has been shaken, where our normal rhythm of life has been disrupted, and we should not be caught unaware. This can and should be an opportunity for refinement, of edification, of growth in holiness. But there are temptations that come with this trial. So I want to spend the rest of my time this morning discussing two in particular. Obviously, these are not the only two temptations that we as Christians might be currently facing. There are many temptations that come in the midst of fear and loneliness and disruption. But I think that these two represent common but powerful temptations that we might be experiencing in our current situation. So first, we can be tempted during times like this, to doubt God in a way that causes our faith to become significantly weakened. In any situation where there is such widespread suffering, it is easy to begin to question the character of God. We can begin to question God's love for us. If God is truly loving, then why would he allow suffering to happen on such a wide scale like this? Or we could begin to question God's justice. If God is just, then why would he allow the righteous to suffer and die? We could question God's power and providence. 
If God really is powerful and all things are happening within his will, then why would he even allow this to occur or why would he not put an end to it? These sort of doubts can become particularly difficult to deal with as we pray. And it seems that our prayers go unheard. Perhaps you are currently experiencing a time in your prayer life when God seems to be completely silent. Dearly beloved, if you are experiencing these sort of doubts, then let me encourage you not to ignore them. You need to address them. There are seasons of life where we struggle and we need to preach to ourselves during these times. This is a model we find in the Psalms. Psalm Psalms 42 and 43, for instance, seek to push into the questioning that is going on within us that arises during times of trial and tribulation. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? But notice the psalmist immediately responds to his own question, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So how do we respond to our doubts? By encouraging our souls to place their hope in God, reminding ourselves of all of God's mighty works and praising God. And as we seek to do just that, I want to give two simple responses to these doubts that might be tempting us to turn from our faith in God. First, Just because we don't see a good reason for why all of this is happening doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason. God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. God addressed Job like this for two whole chapters before God finally says to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Fault finding with God presumes that we know better than God, that we have more wisdom than God, that we are more just than God or more righteous or more loving. But God does not reveal to us his purposes or ask our opinions. We do not have the perspective that God has. It is his prerogative and his alone to rule the universe as he sees fit in a way that is in accordance with his perfect will and brings him glory. He asks us simply to place our trust in him. Therefore, rather than allowing our doubts to lead us away from God, we should be running to him, resting in him, praising him as our sovereign king. As we saw last week, as we were encouraged to do in Psalm 33. But second, even when God seems silent, as though he does not care and is not acting on our behalf, we know the truth of God's character. Because he has revealed himself throughout history. In order to fight every temptation to doubt, we must always turn to God's word and respond with the truth of scripture. We mustn't allow our feelings in a moment to prevail over God's eternal truth. 
And what we find in Scripture is that there is not just a general revelation of God's character. We find God's character specifically revealed, perfectly revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. And the extent of his goodness and care for us is revealed on the cross of Jesus Christ, where the justice of God, the mercy of God, the righteousness of God, the love of God all come together and are put on perfect and clear display. God does oppose sin and punish sin. He is just and righteous, but he pours out his wrath against sin on his very own son, Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross. So he shows himself not only to be righteous and just, acting in perfect holiness, not turning a blind eye to sin, but he also shows himself to be merciful. He reaches out to us in love and forgives us. As the Apostle John says, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation of our sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can find the assurance of who God is and the love he has for us, his children, by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. So while we don't know why all this is happening or perhaps where God is in it all, we don't have to question whether God is present with us or whether he will love us through it. Preach this to your souls, dearly beloved. And let me, use, let me encourage you to use this as an opportunity to diligently seek the face of God. What we find is that, what we might find is that what we wanted from God when we wanted God was that we wanted him only to receive some benefit other than God. But God is our ultimate reward. We see this modeled for us as well in the Psalms where trials are seen to produce a longing for God, a longing to be in his presence. For instance, in Psalm 27 where David feels the threat of his enemies pursuing him and surrounding him. But what is David's primary desire? One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He doesn't spend time pondering why this is all happening to him. He simply wants to be in God's presence because he understand, understands God to be his light in his salvation. He understands that he has nothing if he has not God. Later in the psalm, he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. This is the cry of David's heart in his time of trouble. He wants to know more of God's presence. He looks to God for help and for comfort. We see the same sort of thing in Psalm 63, which begins, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. 
as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Again, we can feel David's anguish, but we find David seeking God as the source of his refreshment in life. So let me ask you, where are you looking right now to find your comfort? It is so easy to seek comfort with food and drink or by escaping reality by binge-watching shows and movies on Netflix and Hulus. And it could be that there are some who have been stuffing themselves full of food and drink and entertainment because they feel so empty. And they haven't realized that their souls are sick. That there are questions that are eating away at them that they haven't had the courage to address. We should examine ourselves at this point. Where we are seeking to find our comfort says a lot about the state of our souls right now. It says a lot about whether this trial is a means by which we are being edified or whether we are succumbing to temptation. Dearly beloved, confront your doubts, preach to yourselves, seek the Lord. The second temptation that threatens the church during this time is to allow the physical distancing that has become our new norm during the stay-at-home order to become normalized moving forward, especially as it pertains to our participation in the church, the body of Christ. While I think that most of us are eager for in-person interaction, once again, we must also perhaps confess that we have found the conveniences offered to us by way of technology to be quite intoxicating. For instance, probably most of us had never used video conferencing apps like Zoom before this pandemic. Now they have become our go-to means for communication and interaction. You might have been apprehensive at first, but now you have discovered the benefit of not only hearing the voice of your family and friends, but also seeing their faces without ever having to leave the comfort of your home. Businesses and organizations too have discovered the benefit of these apps for replacing in-person meetings, as well as technologies that allow for their employees to work from home using remote access and cloud storage. Similarly, students have realized the workability of online classes. And for, in, in fact, perhaps some have discovered that getting an education online is much more cost efficient and provides greater flexibility while gaining access to some of the best instructors in the world. And with these sorts of advantages, the question becomes, will some of these things stick moving forward? Will students return to their campuses? Will businesses bring employees back to corporate office spaces or go back to expensive and time-consuming in-person meetings? Will you, dearly beloved, return to wandering around Walmart looking for groceries when you can find them on your phone, place an order and swing by and pick them up without ever exiting your vehicle? 
I think the reality is that some aspects of our normal lives have been forever changed. There is no going back to normal after the stay-at-home order is lifted. But how about our life together as a church? Churches have been forced to expand their digital presence. And many of us are doing online video Bible studies and devotionals. We're gathering for meetings via Zoom. We are worshiping via live stream. And we thank God for this technology that allows us to still operate during this time. But perhaps you have discovered how nice it is to spend Sunday morning at home without any rush to get anywhere on time. Or how comfortable it is to worship from your living room. There isn't anyone stopping you from sipping on your coffee through the service. And I am not saying that any of you are doing this, but there are perhaps Christians in our consumeristic culture that have realized they can replace their preacher with a much better one because they have access to the best preachers in the world online. Or that they can make a 75-minute worship service go by in only a fraction of the time by speeding up the video or cutting out parts they don't care for. Worship can be catered to our convenience and our liking. And herein lies the problem. While we can give thanks to God for all of this technology that has allowed us to communicate and stay connected in ways that would have been impossible even a few years ago, this technology comes with a curse. It gives us the option to never leave our homes. The reality is that we are were already headed on a trajectory of our lives being dominated by technology, of staring at our screens way too much. But all of this technology that was promising to bring us together through email or social media or text messaging or video conferencing was actually, in many ways, doing the exact opposite. It was driving us apart, isolating us in our homes where we feel safe, where we can communicate on our own terms, where we can present a curated image of ourselves for public consumption. And now, beloved, we have become fully immersed in it. And I anticipate that when this pandemic is over, that our culture will not fully return to an enfleshed reality as it existed before. We will live more than ever in a digital world. And I confess that I have wondered to myself if God hasn't given us over to all of this technology. We have been so consumed with our devices that God, in judgment against us, finally said, fine, have at it. You want to isolate yourselves? You want to stare at a screen all day? I will make it possible for you. And so perhaps this is a moment in history where we need to step back and evaluate how we are using technology, to what end it is being used. It's a moment for us to evaluate what we believe about our bodies. Is our physicality important? Is it important that we gather together in the flesh, brothers and sisters? 
And we are tempted in this moment to look at the convenience of what we are currently doing and begin to believe that the benefits of a digital church outweigh the cost. And dearly beloved, if we are being tempted in this way, then we mustn't give in. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Again, we must fight this temptation with the truth of God's word where we find that God made us to be physical beings and he called it good. What he said wasn't good was that we were alone. We were created in the image of God who is in fellowship with himself, one in three and three in one. Therefore, we have been created not only to be in fellowship with God, but with one another. And the importance of us physically gathering together is affirmed in the incarnation of God's word. God does not simply come to us as an aberration. He comes to us to dwell with us clothed in human flesh. If physicality was unimportant, then God could have come in another form, but he didn't. God affirms in the person of Jesus Christ the goodness of the physical world. Jesus comes with a body, he is raised with a body, and he is redeeming all of the physical world through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Believing that our bodies are unimportant for our meeting together implies that we can somehow detach our spiritual lives from our physical lives, which is a Gnostic nonsense. It is an ancient heresy. Therefore, as one writer put it, it's a move away from what it means to be human, and it is an insult to the incarnation. What this means is that physically gathering as a church should only ever give way to meeting virtually in the most extreme circumstances as we are right now. Ordinarily, we should, as the writer of Hebrews encourages us, not neglect meeting together. We are not neglecting to meet together right now because we cannot meet together right now. But Lord willing, the day is quickly approaching when we will have the opportunity to gather together once again. And my prayer is that none of us shrink away from the opportunity when it arrives. I hope that we are all eagerly awaiting the day when we can physically gather together in this sanctuary and worship our great God together. And perhaps when all of this is over, all of us should conclude our fasting from food on Tuesdays and celebrate with a great community feast. And when we break our weekly fasting from food, maybe we should take up fasting from technology for a while. Giving thanks to God for the opportunity to gather together in the flesh by actually doing it. And my prayer for myself and for all of you is that this isn't a moment where we move deeper into the digital world, but that our commitment to physically gathered community is revitalized. This is how we can be edified in this trial. We can evaluate our technology usage and make changes away from the virtual in favor of real presence. So my plan is to be all the more intentional about meeting with people face-to-face -face once I can.
gathering together for fellowship and worship in the study of God's word and sharing meals together, serving together, doing life together. I invite you to join with me in that pursuit as we consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So dearly beloved, this is an opportunity for the strengthening of our faith, for the growth in holiness. What are we making of this time? Are we falling into temptation or are we seeking the face of God and being refined through this trial? As the Apostle Paul advises the church in Ephesus, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God's will for us is to be holy as he is holy, to grow in relationship with him, to deny ourselves and be joined together in the unity of the faith. By God's strength working in and through us and his mercy upholding us through this trial, may we do these things to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Lord, we seek your face this day. Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, that we would find the delight of dwelling in your presence. Lord, help us, uphold us through this trial and keep us from temptation. Lord, help us to set our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us run this race with endurance by the power of the Holy Spirit. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.